welcome back to the podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. On today, we have New York Times bestselling author, Elliot Schrafer. You might be familiar with Elliot Schrafer if you are a fan of Trevor Noah's late night TV show. They had an interview with Elliot um, back in June talking about Elliot's brand new book, Queer Ducks and Other Animals. We'll get into the story of that book. It's a book that I think is going to make a very big splash a very big difference. And as we are talking about the power of books, I want to remind you that just around the corner is a very special event coming up from our friends, the nonprofit organization Pride and Less Prejudice. So before we get into today's interview, please enjoy a little bit of business from them. Pride and Less Prejudice, a nonprofit organization, is excited to announce their second annual virtual auction. This is on during Band Books Week. That happens September 22nd, a Thursday, through till the Sunday, September 25th. You can join and support the nonprofit organization Pride and Less Prejudice in raising $10,000 to send 800 inclusive books to elementary schools across North America. You're invited to bid on a wide variety of items, including artwork, virtual experiences, pride-themed items, jewelry, donations from prominent celebrities and musicians, and much more. So join Pride and Less Prejudice for their second Band Together event. See the show notes for more information or head over to www.prideandlessprejudice.org forward slash events. And while you're over there in the show notes, please know that more information about today's guest will be available in that space as well. So learn more about Pride and Less Prejudice and be sure to follow our author, and I will also be sure to link to that interview clip with Trevor Noah as well. Enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. So Elliot, in the beginning of your brand new book that um, listeners, I just have to say, I love it. I can't stop talking about it. I've, I'm almost being annoying with friends and family about how important this book is. Your, your new book, Queer Ducks, you tell the reader that this book was written simultaneously for the 11-year-old version of yourself, as well as for us, the audience. I'm wondering if you might expand on how the book speaks to that younger version of Elliot, as well as to relevant issues that so many of us are thinking about and discussing today. Yeah, of course. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really honored to get to talk to you and talk to your listeners about Queer Ducks a little bit. I, yeah, I, you know, honestly, there's not a lot of adult facing material around the topic of same sex sexual behavior in animals and the ways in which animals can blur sexual binaries that we thought were absolute. Uh, and so it, it was tempting when I discovered the topic to write it towards an adult reader primarily. But I realized, you know, there's such a current sense of urgency around the internalized feeling of unnaturalness, which has, you know, a huge negative consequence for. LGBTQIA plus young people. Uh, and, you know, Trevor Project just did a survey last year finding that 42% of um, young people uh, who are LGBT teenagers had considered suicide. Uh, and just that, and that even if the language that we're using right now, unnatural doesn't come up as much as it did in decades past, that's still the underlying philosophical belief behind a lot of anti-gay legislation and just general anti-gay anti bias. Uh, and so, 
I wanted to write it to a young towards a young person uh, as my ideal reader because it's it's what I needed the most to hear when when I was that age. Uh, so when I was eleven, I realized I was gay, and it was just um, I was I know some people it doesn't come across as like an absolute instant thing, but it was like I hit puberty, and it was just so clear to me. I'm like a Kinsey six, I guess, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> or is that a one? I forget how the which direction the scale goes. Um, and so it was just a total shock to me. Like it was almost like an overnight thing that was inside of me. And I was kind of, you know, I was in a purple area of the country. I was living in Tampa Bay and I had this, you know, um, I was in a homophobic world and expressed homophobic things because that's just what sixth grade boys did in my middle school. And then all of a sudden, it was I was gay, and that was the outsider thing, the thing that was wrong, you know, that we all talked about that way. And so I didn't tell anyone, I didn't talk to anyone about it, but I went to the encyclopedia. This is in the early 90s, and I saw I looked up homosexuality, and it just at that point it was all the kind of Freudian theories about this kind of mistakes that happen in early development and too much attachment to one or one or both parents that causes it, or too little attachment. And, uh, that it was this way in which in early life some young person had gone wrong and now had this kind of disease attached to them. Uh, and that negative impression of who I was um, hit me hard. Uh, and it took me years to kind of embrace that. Like I it was kind of the um the Oscar Wilde option for how to how to survive queerness. Like I was like, sure, it's unnatural, it doesn't exist in the natural world, and that's great. I love it. Like who wants to be conventional? Like I'm this is better than conventional, you know, kind of embracing it. And that, and that is absolutely true. I don't think there's any innate link between what is natural and what is good. And that you, you can be unnatural and still be worthy of respect and um, consideration. Uh, but I would have, I, I was lucky to make it through that gauntlet. I had, you know, supportive friends and supportive family and a lot of young people don't. And I think the realization that you are not unnatural, that this is a, something that is taught as scientific truth that is absolutely untrue based on the last 30 years of scientific research into same-sex behavior in animals. Like that is a crucial, crucial thing for young people to know and to internalize and to understand. Um, and so that they don't have this feeling of innate, innate wrongness, right? That like maybe my church, maybe my immediate family, maybe my school judges me, but I, there's nothing inherently wrong or unnatural about who I am and what I believe and, and, how I, how I love. Uh, and I think that was a really important message to get across. Absolutely. And, you know, it reminds me that there are so many different reasons for folks to order this book or to ask their local library to stock up on it. Um, you know, one of which that you kind of tapped into there was that science, you know, whether or not you are interested in science, it's important to think about the way that bias can show up in that space. So I will have many listeners who will be familiar with the IB theory of knowledge course that looks at different ways of knowing. Uh, and I'm thinking absolutely for anybody who teaches that course, this is a really great book because you address that. And the book is sort of difficult to describe. And Elliot, I mean that as a compliment. There's a lot going on in a in a short book, right? It's a very accessible book. You've got comics, you have interviews, you have anecdotes. And of course, you have that blend of science and research as well. Um, so again, I think 
folks who are interested in expanding their network of, of scientists, of, of people that, that care about biology, it's a great book. I think folks who are interested in, in thinking and talking more about identity, as you were just discussing, this is a wonderful book. And of course, for those who are interested in the world of animals, it's a great book. When you were planning this book, I'm wondering, um, you know, which direction you, you found yourself wanting to go if you knew it was going to be a blend of, of all of those different types of perspectives or um, just how it evolved to be sort of this great eclectic mix of storytelling. Yeah, well, th and thank you for those, um, those kind words. I actually taught theory of knowledge my first year out of college. I was at a boarding school in Rome, St. Stephen's School, and I taught uh, team taught the theory of knowledge class that year. Oh, that's um, so cool. <laughs> that's me in 2001. It's a, it's a flashback. Um, and I I think approaching this material, it's exactly like you said. I think history, hidden history curricula have done a really good job uh, in the last decades of reorienting around the idea that history is created by historians and therefore shows the evidence of what those historians' belief systems are in how it's written down. It isn't some absolute truth. It's a story that's told, and we work really hard to try to get as close to truth as we can, but we can't because it's all interpreted by humans over, over time. And I think science is much earlier in that journey than history is, and that we have this impression that the scientist is blank and that it is just the recording of data and the observation of phenomena that gets passed down and that we, we learn about. And that it actually the human person doesn't really matter. We don't really have to consider who that person is and what their point of view is. Uh, and one of the things I wanted to do in Queer Ducks and Other Animals was um, I interviewed a lot of young, diverse scientists, scientists of color, queer scientists, as well as some straight ones too. They're allowed in. <laughs> but uh, I interviewed them to, to A, show young readers, this is who gets to do science, that it's not just middle-aged white guys in lab coats, uh, but also to capture the fact that, you know, that science is created by the people who make it. It's created by scientists. And so, you know, the, I remember t talking to a young Indian American lesbian woman um, who's a, the only person of color in her apartment. And she just talks about how if we have a very homogenous group doing science, we get a very homogenous science on the other end. And the big thing about animal science and the observation of animal sexuality and animal sex is that most animals are sexually monomorphic, which means the males and females look identical. And so if you're in the field and you see two penguins mounting and your assumption is that penguins have a heteronormative society that it's always male and female sex, then you'll just write it down in your logbook as a sex act between a male and a female. Um, whereas actually now that we're sexing penguins in the wild, um, we find like a third of those pairings are actually same sex. This is not just the zoo populations made famous in Tango Mix 3, but actual wild Antarctic penguins. And so, I think with, if you, it's not like there is, there has been a history of intentional repression of the observation of same sex sex and animals. But I think for the vast majority of scientists, the reason it's not getting reported is it's actually not getting seen. It's like a confirmation bias of coming in in a very, on the face of it, a very legitimate one that there is no, or they were not taught an ev evolutionary explanation for why there would be same sex sexual behavior in the wild. So it should be rare or an anomaly was the like fairly reasonable conclusion based on the limited data that we have. When now that we're sexing animals in the wild and seeing, you know, nature just did a study showing there was 1,500 different animal species with significant same-sex sexual behavior in the wild. That now that we're open to seeing it, we can see all the the massive advantages that animals are getting from it. 
And so it's just changed the, our, our who's doing the science and our willingness to be open to um, observations that seemed improbable before has absolutely changed what, what was always there and what we see about it. I, I really appreciate how the book goes into that at, in depth and gives examples so that, again, learners can kind of dig into it even deeper. They can look at, um, you've got a case study that's referenced there. So it's a really, really interesting part of your book. Um, and I, I wanted to sort of ask you to, to give listeners a bit of a sneak peek of another chapter. Elliot, I have to tell you, it's it's my favorite chapter. It is the chapter on dolphins. Uh, listeners who are reading the book, if you've got a, a different chapter, we can, we can talk more about what your favorite chapter is, if you're able to identify one. Uh, you reference dolphin sexual behavior as a really interesting fit to run alongside human sexual behavior. And I don't want you to spoil too much of this phenomenal dolphin chapter, but can you talk a little bit more about that parallel of comparing human behavior and dolphin behavior. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. And actually, I'm really happy to talk about the dolphins because it is most people's not number one go-to. <laughs> we tend to be, as primates, we tend to be very primate focused. And so I think people are kind of drawn to apes very quickly, but I'm super, super glad to talk about dolphins. Um, I, there was this, I opened that chapter with, there's um, a moment in Glee, you know, from 2004, I think in the first season. And Brittany, the, the cheerleader who just spouts these seemingly vapid, but actually kind of profound things says like out of nowhere, like, did you know that dolphins are just gay sharks? <laughs> and I totally, totally laughed. And then 10 years later, you know, I'm started starting to do the research in this book. I'm like, wait a second. Like there's actually a little bit there. They're not actually gay sharks, but dolphins are one of the few species that do have um, members of the, of the species that are, are exclusively homosexual, which is actually really unusual in the animal world. Like, to think of like that they are gay animals is actually kind of to get it wrong. What we're really talking about is um, a much more prevalent bisexuality in animals than we have been considering that most of these animals are having sex with both sexes. However, there are some male dolphins that are only into other male dolphins and don't have sex with females. Um, but for most dolphins, they have sex with both. Um, this is true for females and males. Uh, but the male union, the male, what used to be known as male friendship for decades until Janet Mann, who is the foremost dolphin researcher, uh, she operates a field site in Shark Bay, Australia. Janet Mann finally came out with the, the fact that it's a sexual friendship between these male dolphins. It is the, the only lasting union in dolphin society. So males and females will come together for a few um, weeks at a time to until the female is, is pregnant. She goes off to raise her calf. There's a high amount of competition for those females. So these male pairs, these sexually bonded male pairs will compete with other male pairs to, to get access to the most desirable females, but they are bonded for life and they will spend, um, if it goes well, they'll spend decades together in this lifetime union cemented by really frequent sex, uh, about 2.4 times an hour on average, um, which sounds exhausting, <laughs> but I guess they like it. Um, and so it's, it's not just that there is significant same-sex sex among dolphins. It is actually the dominant and only lasting union is is homosexual in their in their society, um, and it's a it shakes up everything we assumed about animals because this is not just an animal getting pleasure with another animal of its same sex. It is actually like heterosexual is like very infrequent compared to homosexual sex in dolphins, um, and so it's really interesting to run it, it. The fact that there are also 
um, you know, maybe 10% of dolphins that are exclusively homosexual, which depending on who's doing the math, like can correspond with the way some human societies are. Um, it seems that they're an interesting parallel to run next to human sexuality. And, you know, we exist in a cultural anomaly. Um, it's tempting to think that human history is this progress from more conservative to more accepting, but absolutely not to around sexuality. Uh, and, you know, an anthropologist, R.C. Kirkpatrick, did a study of all human societies he could find data on over the history of, over human history, and found that 65% of them were um, either accepting or actually supportive and condoning um, same-sex sex or same-sex unions. Um, and so our bias against it actually kind of makes us stand out. And we also stand out in the West in the 21st century for having this uh, tendency to, to call people either homosexual or heterosexual, that most societies had a much more uh, plural version of what human sexuality could look like. Um, so it's interesting to compare what the dolphins are doing to what was happening in like ancient Greece, um, where you would have uh, a, a cultural acceptance of sex between males, um, and likely mirrored by by the cultural acceptance of sex between females, it's just females don't enter the historical record as much. So we know that there are tribes of warrior women that would also be cemented through sex, just like male soldiers would, but it just doesn't appear in the historical record as much. Um, but these sexual unions between males would also, so a, a male could be, have a, as a young man could have a sexual um, relationship with an older man, um, and then as he got older, have a sexual relationship with a younger man, um, as well as a marriage to a woman. So particularly for the politically advantaged class, this was a way to have multiple advantageous unions. These sexual connections between males were as meditated upon and as um, kind of socially prescribed uh, as the heterosexual union. So it wasn't, you know, um, just about the sex. It was about this romantic attachment and a political maneuver between families. Uh, and so it's this way of securing social advantage through same-sex unions, as well as procreating and, and carrying on the, the, the gene pool and the, and the family through these heterosexual unions as well. In fact, those are happening in parallel and that you have this structuring, like the main structural glue in society as um, sexual union between males. Like it's just an amazing parallel to dolphins that you have. We are separated from them by millions of years of natural history. We're distant, distant relatives of the dolphin. And yet these two individual societies under similar plush, um, pressures of um, getting social power and getting access to the most socially desirable females came up with the same solutions um, that this combination of male sexual attachment and heterosexual sexual attachment. Um, it's just really interesting to like run the data just with two different animals and they came to the same conclusion. Yeah, it's I, it's just it's so fascinating, and you know I appreciate that you reference how you you blended in that piece of pop culture too. I mean, it's kind of shocking for me to look at the book. In everything that you've described, listeners, you might think like, is this book like eight hundred pages long? There's so much ground that is covered, and no, it's a very economical book. It's you know a book you can get through in the weekend, and I I think you will get through it in the weekend. It's difficult to put it down. It's so engaging. 
Um, you've really sparked so much curiosity for me to learn more about the animal world and the diversity that's there that um, for too long has not been discussed in science classes. So you've given educators a wonderful, wonderful tool. And I am willing to bet many of them will want to reach out to you uh, to connect you with their school. Elliot, what opportunities might there be to do that? And what's the best way to connect with you? Yeah, I'm I'm very excited always to talk to schools. So please do reach out if you um, want to talk to me either about queer ducks or my earlier work like the ape quartet um, about the great apes and humans' relationships with great apes. Um, my the easiest and best way to contact me is through my website, elliotschrafer.com. Uh, there's a contact form there and that goes to me. So I will get your message and I will respond to you. Um, that's the easiest. I'm also in the usual social media places. So if you're if that's your thing, then you'll probably find me there, except not for TikTok, because I've aged out of being able to understand TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> I made it as far as Instagram and then I'm I'm out. I'm in my forties now. I just thought. <laughs> well, listeners, we'll make sure that we've got Elliot's uh, website as well as his social over there for you in the show notes so that you can connect with him. I cannot say enough great things about the book. Elliot, thank you for putting it out there into the world. I'm really excited to see um, the response to it. And I know many friends, many peers will be picking it up. Um, and, and again, I, I think it really is going to make such a difference in so many different spaces in education. So congratulations again. The book is available everywhere you can get your books. Um, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful resource. So Elliot, thank you for sharing more about it today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for this really, really engaged conversation and your, your thoughts about the book. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Listeners, before you go, I just want to thank you. Good Pods has recently recognized this podcast, the one you're listening to right now, as one of their top 100 in educational podcasts. I'm so proud of that. Um, it means a lot. If you could take a brief moment to rate and review the show, it makes a huge difference. I'd appreciate it. See you again next Thursday.